Good morning. Merry Christmas. We can still say Merry Christmas. It's not over yet. You know, uh, I don't know, a few, a few weeks ago, we were in a, a meeting around here, and we were trying to decide who was going to do church the Sunday after, after Christmas. So we all cast lots, and uh, me and Chris won. Jason lost, so we sent him up to Tennessee to relax, like whatever, whatever that is. So, but uh, it's good to, to see you all. It's good that you all remembered that it was Sunday. You know, it's that, that weird time between Christmas and New Year's where you like, don't know what day it is ever. You like, feel like you're supposed to be somewhere, but you're not really sure where it is. So the fact that we made it, I'm, I'm proud of myself for making it here, but... Um, you know, here it is, like, not even a week after Christmas, and, and it's happened, it's happened again. Just days after celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, God made flesh come to dwell among us. Headline Facebook News has reported to me that 2018 was, in fact, the very worst year in history. You know, I say, I say that jokingly, but not really, because, like, that's, that's what it always is. It's like, yeah, everything's great, like Christmas, family, Jesus, and then immediately we got to take to the, the internet streets and let everyone know what a terrible year this past year actually was. And, I mean, i got to say that there, there is some, some truth in this. I mean, we've seen, like, 2018 had some tough, some tough things. Uh, you know, everyone goes through... Uh, whatever they go through in a year, but also just just the world has seen some some pretty awful stuff, you know. Uh, kids getting killed at school, just other awful awful tragedies, terrible things going on uh, at our borders and in Europe, and we got this widening gap of political disparity. Uh, People are restless. We've seen some of the, the very worst human behavior this past year, and it's, it's really difficult to understand. But it's even more difficult to see like, where God was during all this. Where, where were you this year, God? Like, What were you doing? Were you even here? Or have you forsaken us? And well, I mean, this is church, and so the answer is yes. God was here. God was busy. And no, no, God has most certainly not forsaken us. But as, as humans, uh, we have this uncanny ability to stop looking for where God is when things get tough. We lose sight of what really matters, what's most important when everything around us doesn't seem to make any sense. So today, I want to just take some time to, to go way back. I mean, last week and in Christmas time, we're like 2,000 years back. But I want to go like 700 years farther back into our history, into into the Old Testament and see what God has to say to his people when they were kind of going through it, like we do. Now, Israel, uh, 
they weren't strangers to bad years. In fact, they were known for having bad centuries. Uh, in the time leading up to their exile in Babylon, they were, they were really having a tough time. They had enemies outside pressing in on them. They had enemies inside. Political unrest, a slew of terrible kings, and just as a nation, they were, they were wandering away from what God wanted for them. God saw all of this going on, and he appointed probably his most famous, most quoted prophet to declare, well, to declare judgment over Israel and the surrounding nations, but also to bring good news of redemption, redemption for his people. And so in the midst of all of this, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, hey, uh, I got a message that I need you to tell my people. And so today we're in Isaiah 43, and uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, Isaiah is talking to the people, and he says, This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished. Snuffed out like a wick. So Isaiah introduces his dialogue by saying like, Hey, guys, God told me to tell you this. But before I tell you what God told me to tell you, I want you to remember who's talking. I want you to remember who God is. God saved you. God called out the chariots in the armies of Egypt And he saved you from them. You, his people. So Isaiah prophesied a long time after the events of the Exodus. But people would remember these stories. They would be passed down. They would be spoken about. Stories like when God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt. They would remember the plagues that convinced and coaxed Pharaoh to let them free. They would remember that their people walked through the Red Sea. But they might also remember some of the smaller details of the story. They would possibly remember that in between being freed and passing through the Red Sea, that this had happened. This is Exodus uh, Exodus 14, 1 through 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. See, God has shown his power. He stepped into human history in mighty ways to protect and redeem his people. And sometimes he does this in in ways that we can't deny it. Powerful, mighty ways. You know, it's easy to remember the plagues that convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites exit Egypt. 
And then the miraculous parting of the Red Sea that allowed the Israelites to get to safety. But we forget that God is also deeply involved in the details. He knew, he knew Egypt, and he knew that Egypt would not take this disgrace of having to set their slaves free very lightly. And he knew that they would pose a significant threat to his people once they settled the promised land. So he decides to deal with their army now. But we don't want to necessarily believe that God's in all of the details. We want God to do something mighty to change our lives. And we forget that God acted and that God took out Egypt's army and that all of that required the Israelites to do some things. So God told Moses, go ahead, go and encamp in this place right next to the sea. Good luck telling your people that. It's not going to make a lot of sense to them. Because they'll know that once they get there, that they're trapped between Egypt's armies and water. But Moses said, okay. And he led his people there. And when they realized that Pharaoh's armies were following them, they cried out to Moses in anguish. They said, why have you led us here to die? But Moses told them, hey, hold firm. Let the Lord fight your battles. And as we know, the rest is history. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through. And behind them, the armies of Egypt are swallowed up. And we remember this story, and we, we hear it in Sunday school, and we tell it to our children, because it's a, it's a great story about God doing stuff, right? God changing human circumstances in a powerful way. But do we remember that this isn't just a story of God acting, but a story of his people doing things that didn't make sense to them? Follow this man who actually used to work for the government, right? Used to live in your enemy's house, who then fled the country because he killed somebody. Now, when he tells you to paint blood over the doorways of your houses to avoid a plague, do that. Now, when you're freed, go and camp somewhere where you might surely die. Somewhere where your fate will be sealed. Maybe grudgingly, they did these things, but nonetheless, they followed Moses because they trusted Moses. And Moses followed God because Moses knew that God had not only his best interests, but the interests of his people in mind. They believed that God was involved in every single aspect of the situation. But we have a hard time with this. We see the world and we see our lives from one particular point of view, our own. 
And sometimes all that we can see is the trouble that we're having, the evil that's closing in, or just the plain hard times that are, are bringing us down. Maybe we think back to these old stories and we say to ourselves, man, it sure would be nice if God would just step in and do something miraculous again. A writer named Mark Batterson says this. One of our fundamental spiritual problems is this. We want God to do something new while we keep doing the same old thing. We want God to change our circumstances without us having to change at all. In other God words, we, we want God to move, but we don't really want to move, right? We, we don't want to make changes ourselves. We want God to make our lives easier. And we forget that God is active in every single thing that happens. But that a lot of the time... He acts through the actions of people. And this is, this is hard to wrap our heads around because it's this, this gray, mysterious area where God's absolute sovereign power over the world and the free will of humans to make choices, good and bad, meet. But he uses those choices, the good and the bad, to further his own purposes for his people. So even while God is in control, terrible things happen. And surely we understand this because we live in the world and we see it every single day. And Israel was about to understand this through Isaiah's prophecy in the next several verses. So verses 18 and 19, this is God speaking now. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. He says, hey, guys, forget everything that I've done in the past. Not, not forget that it happened, but stop thinking of me acting as a past-only event. I'm doing stuff now, and I'm going to continue to do stuff in the future. Stop thinking of me as past. And here's the thing. Isaiah and all prophecy is, is strange to read, and it's, it's stranger than like any other type of biblical writing because it's delivered to us from God's point of view. And God's point of view of the world is much different than ours. It transcends time. So in particular, this passage, God is telling Israel that he is going to redeem them. But the funny thing is that this all occurs right in this period of time where the Assyrians are waging war and exiling the people from the northern kingdom, and Babylon is moving in. And Babylon's going to do the same thing, destroy the cities, destroy the temple, and exile the people into slavery. God's saying to them, hey, I'm doing something new. It's about, I'm about to do it, and it's going to be um, actually terrible. It's going to seem terrible. 
Because it, it's including the exile. But the exile, when we look at it now, it served a very specific purpose. It disposed of Israel's terrible propensity for state-sponsored divergence from God's law. See, up until this point, kings in both the northern and the southern kingdoms have led Israel astray. He's saying, hey, hard times, hard times are coming, but I, I'm right there with you. I'm working through Babylon, the great evil, to redeem you. And certainly, God does this. And the people are eventually returned to their land. They rebuild their cities. They rebuild the temple. Their nation is rebuilt. And it's restored. But prophecy, like I said, it it transcends time. So while God is saying, hey, Israel, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem you from the exile. He's also talking about the long term. This all has to happen so that I can further redeem you later. See, I, I, the Lord, am setting a stage for, for the end game, the coming of the Messiah, who will be born to you in this nation that I redeem from its wickedness through the exile. These hard times, Israel's current and coming wilderness all serve the purpose of molding the nation into something that it just is not. Something that God intends for it to be, but something that it could not and would not become on its own. Israel had been warned and course corrected for centuries, and yet it could not return to God. And so God says, that's it. I'm going to use the nations around you to mold you. And this is, this is what we forget when times are tough. We forget that God might just be molding us into what he wants us to be. By simply surveying the culture of the world today, it feels like the church is under siege. In a lot of places, the church has like systematically begun to destroy itself with more and more accusations of misconduct coming to light this past year. There's a growing sense of disillusionment towards Christianity in America. Major reports show that mainline denominations that once dominated Christianity are losing membership at an alarming rate in the Western world. There's division amongst our ranks about the future of Christianity in America. It seems like gloomy times. We're just, we're just hoping that God will step in and do something miraculous and make a change, but we can't even seem to agree on what that change should be. We're saying, God, turn the hearts of the people back to seeing the church as a friend rather than a foe, as a place to belong rather than a place to be kicked out of. We look back to the glory days of the church, the revival and evangelism that spread across Europe, that spread across our own country, when the church dominated culture. We didn't have to worry about membership and money because it was taken for granted that all the people were Christians and they were coming to church. 
But we don't live there anymore. Things have changed. And we can't be stuck on what God was doing in the church back then. We're going to have to face up to it and embrace what God is doing in the church now. And though it's painful, God is, God is doing something in all of this. He is at work to mold the church into something that it could not and would not become on its own. Sound familiar? And like it or not, the same principle applies in our own lives. God, God wants us to change. He wants us to become more like him. But we're just, we don't want to do that. We are too stubborn to make it happen all on our own. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. This is because Christianity is more than just like a nice place to hang out and meet friends. Even though, you know, I like, it's a nice place to hang out. I call you guys my friends. Uh, Christianity is much, much more than that. Christianity is a process of refinement. It's not meant to be comfortable. In fact, it's quite obviously meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to be more like a silversmith and his forge. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you look at a silver plate or a piece of silver jewelry and it's shiny, it doesn't come out of the ground like that. It comes out as silver ore and it's, got, it's filled with other, uh, other chemicals and other stuff that makes it impure. And so what a silversmith does is he takes that silver ore and he heats up a fire really, really hot and he, and he sticks the silver into the hottest part of the fire and he leaves it there and he leaves it there while it burns off the impurities. And if he, if he pulls it out too early, it's still, it's still not good enough. It's not pure. If he leaves it in there too long, the silver gets spoiled. So how does, how does he know? How does he know when to take the silver out? How does he know when it's been long enough, but not too long? Well, the answer is that when he looks in at the silver and sees it, he can see his own reflection shining back at him through it. And this, this is us. God is constantly refining us, doing a new thing, trying to mold us into his own likeness. But it's painful. It's hot. Just like the exile was painful for Israel, nothing seemed as though it made much sense. But are we seeing God acting in our lives through all of it? Do we recognize that regardless of our circumstances, God is working in and through them for the good of those who love him? You know, I think that the question that we constantly have either on our lips or in the very back of our minds is why? Why, God, do you act 
in this way. Why the process of refinement? Why don't you just snap your fingers and make everything good again? Why not transform us into your likeness instantly? Why does it have to be a process? The next few verses of Isaiah's prophecy kind of give us an explanation of this. So in verses 20 and 21, God continues speaking. He says, The the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people that I have formed for myself, that they might proclaim my praise. This process of refinement is done so that when we learn to rely on God, we rely on him because he's the one who provides the water for us in the wilderness. He provides for us because he has chosen us. He has created us for himself for the purpose of proclaiming his praise. Sometimes I think about this, and in my humanity, from my human perspective, I'm just like, hey, God, that's kind of egotistical. You know, God's purpose in creating us was to glorify him. You know, if we look at any other human being, and we discover that every single thing that they do leads solely to the purpose of them being liked by others or making themselves look good, we can't help but think poorly about that. It's not an admirable quality. We say they have a superiority complex or a huge ego or they're trying to compensate for some other area in which they lack. But when we're talking about God, we're talking about someone different. We aren't talking about any other human being. We're talking about the one who is so good and so worthy that actually anything less than glory and praise is a disgrace. If If you're wrestling with that, look at Jesus because he modeled this for us. So while Jesus was with his disciples, he was talking to them about uh, what was going to happen, you know, and what was going to happen was his death. And the disciples were thick-headed, and they just couldn't wrap their head around the Savior, the Messiah, having to die. And so they're having this discussion, and Jesus is trying to just explain to them, this, this is what is going to happen. And in John 12, 27 through 28, Jesus says this. He says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In fact, the entire life of Christ His horrible death and then his resurrection was all meant to achieve one single purpose. To glorify God through the redemption of his people. God called a nation to himself. 
He gave them his word. He gave them the law as a means to preserve and seek after righteousness. And as a way to foreshadow what God was going to set in motion the moment that he stepped into our world wearing human flesh. He alone would redeem his people. And he alone would redeem his entire creation when he comes again. You see, for for Israel, their time of refinement in exile was meant to prepare them for the first coming. And for the church, our time of refinement, where we are now and where we're going, it's intended to prepare us for Christ's second coming. So the answer to our question of why, God, why do you act this way, is pretty simple. God gets good pleasure out of molding us, out of allowing us to choose to see him at work in our lives and in the world. See, when we exercise our free will to live lives that are obedient to him rather than surrender to the evil and sin of this world, God is glorified. When we use the talents, the gifts that God has given us to help our fellow man rather than advance our own selfish agenda, God is glorified. When we choose to stand up for what is right rather than allow injustice to continue on around us, God is glorified. And when we speak the name of Jesus to those who are lost, God is glorified. So you see, God being glorified is a really good thing. And if my only purpose in life is to bring God glory by doing those types of things, then I'm okay with that. Because this God created us. This God saved us. So as we enter into a a new year, the question that we have to ask is really less, is God going to do a new thing this year? And it's much more, am I going to recognize it when he does? See, God is always up to something. He's up to something in our lives and in the world. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I going to be focused on seeing God move this year? Or am I going to be distracted by everything else that's going on around me? The first thing that we need to do is is recognize that God is working in this world through the actions of people, good and bad. Just like he can act even through Pharaoh, Pharaoh's spite towards Israel. If he can use that for their own good, imagine how much more he can do with you. What do you need to change in your life in order to be more open and available to seeing and participating in God's work in the world? Do you need to up your spiritual disciplines? Take some time away from the news, the media, the TV, or whatever else it is that distracts you, that keeps you grounded in the world and not focused on God. 
See, I don't, I don't know what God has in store for each and every one of us individually this new year. I mean, I know that on the first, I'm going to pay my rent. I'm going to give my dog heart guard medication because and I'm going to change my contacts. That's what I do the first month, day of every month. But beyond that, like, what, what does this world have for us? I, I don't know, but I do know that God is going to present each and every one of us with opportunities every single day to join in on what he's doing. Are you going to be ready for it? What would your life look like if the first thing that you came out of your mouth, other than like, I need coffee every morning, was, God, let me help somebody today. I'll tell you exactly how this will change you. You will go about the next 24 hours or however long you're conscious, consciously looking for an opportunity to help someone. And when you do, you'll have the ability to remind yourself that that was God. That was God doing that because I asked him to show me how to help someone. And I did it. God helped them. And he used me. I was his partner. You know, it's it's my hope and my prayer that 2019 will be just like the very best year ever. But things are going to happen. Things are going to happen in the world. And things are going to happen in your life that just don't make sense. And when they do, I hope that you remember the refinement process. And that you can walk through this year knowing that God is holding you and that God is loving you, trying to mold you into someone who looks, acts, and loves just a little bit more like he does. I hope that the something new that God does this year includes something new about each and every one of you. And that through his working in your life, you choose to bring him glory every single day by the way that you treat and love one another and the world around you. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for the way that you mold us into your likeness. And we just ask that, God, in this, in this coming year, this, this new year, that, that we would see you, that we would see you at work, and that we would know that you are doing something new in us, even when it doesn't look like you could possibly be involved. We ask for hearts that are tuned to you, eyes that, that see you, and eyes that see one another and the potential that you have for everyone in this world. Move our hearts and our, our spirits to, to join in. To be a part of the something new that, that you're doing in, in this church and in Dunedin and, and all across the world, God. But most of all, God, let's go into a, a new year with a new love for you and for one another. 
but through the way that we love, people might be drawn to you. We ask this all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.